I, and this is going to sound strange to say, but I enjoyed her father's funeral. It was a very uplifting funeral, very encouraging funeral, but I was talking about how encouraging it was to hear he, I mean, he was a great pastor, but I mean, he was just people. He was a normal person. And um, that always makes me feel better when I hear of somebody else being a normal person. And I greatly respect Brother Will and those those funerals, Pastor talked about this morning. I did the music at those. We talked about going into business together, and he'd preach them, and I'd play them. But, um, but you know, we're just people, and um, I was so nervous this morning teaching Sunday school in front of him, and then... Um, when I was coming up here and he got the handout for this message this afternoon, he said, mine was bigger. <laughs> and I just, I, I wasn't fast enough to come back with something else, something better. But anyway, great things come in small packages. <laughs> Firecracker, I don't know. But um, no, great message this morning. My dad, I love great expository Bible preaching and teaching. And my dad often said growing up that, a lot of pastors use expository preaching as an, as an excuse not to address hard subjects because, you know, I can't address whatever's going on in politics or whatever or what's going on in the nation or sin in the church because it's not in this passage, you know. And I appreciate that Brother Will does great expository preaching, yet at the same time, he hits it and deals with things like sin, which we're going to look at this afternoon. It is not what I had been studying and preparing for, but the Lord changed the direction of the message yesterday afternoon, and um, I really wrestled back and forth with the Lord on it for a few minutes and then became very confident this is what the Lord wanted me to preach. And then after that, um, this morning... Brother Will was preaching, and he made a great introduction to it. So we're going to talk about a subject that, as Barney Fife said, you just can't talk enough about, sin. The doctrine of sin. I was trying to avoid this when Pastor sent me that list of doctrines he'd like taught on. Um, I, I wanted to avoid this one. And um, not, just because, not because I was scared of preaching about sin. It's just such a big subject. Where do you start? Where do you go? And um, anyway, I was really excited about where we were headed for this afternoon and what the Lord was going to be showing us. And then yesterday, I got in the study to make the PowerPoint and put, finished putting everything together, and the Holy Spirit said, that's not it. That one was for you. Now, this is what they're supposed to hear, and uh, whoa, that threw me for a loop. So we're going to talk this afternoon about the doctrine of sin. I think this is maybe the third message in this what we're calling doctrine, Bible Doctrine 101. So let's jump right in. If you did not get a handout, you can raise your hand, and um, hopefully we have a few extra, and we got some kids back there that have copies of them. We're going to look at the doctrine of sin. And as I was praying about how to address this, the Lord very quickly um, as, like I said, I felt very overwhelmed. I was approaching it from a very um, theological approach, I guess, and it felt very overwhelming to me. And the Holy Spirit just prompted me, there's a lot of kids. You need to keep it simple. Okay, Lord, so how do we do that? And anyway, instantly, the Lord started bringing questions to my mind. And um, so we're going to look at six questions 
about sin. Now, some of you may go out saying, but you didn't talk about this verse, and you didn't talk about this verse, and that's an important point. Um, I realize there are many more things we could talk about, but these are the things that I believe the Holy Spirit's given me for this afternoon, and so I hope this will be an encouragement and a help, and help us un- better understand this subject of sin. As I said, we're going to um, try to answer six questions. Number one, what is sin? Number two, where did sin come from? Number three, who is a sinner? Number four, when did we become sinners? Pastor Will talked about this a little bit this morning. What is the punishment for sin? What can we do about sin? So let's jump right in with this first question. What is sin? First, let's look at a few Hebrew words, and we're only going to look at three. There's a number of words to understand sin in the Old Testament. It's good to look at all the different words. In our English Bibles, we would read it words such as iniquity, sin, um, wickedness, evil, rebellion. All of these are different words for sin. But the first Hebrew word we'll talk about here is the word um, kata, and it means to miss the mark or to err or err, depending on what part of the country you're from. But the idea is to miss a mark, and it's actually used, I believe it was in the book of Judges, but the idea of putting a stone into a sling, and you know, David got out there, and he swung that sling around, and he let it go, and that rock went and hit Goliath in the head. He was hitting the mark. Kata is when you don't hit the mark, when you miss the mark. And so this is that concept. And if you follow it through, the result of this word for sin is a breaking of communion. So you could sin against people. If you see there in your notes, there's sins against human relationships. And here's a few verses that, ex- that have that. You know, Joseph's brothers sinned against him when they threw him into the pit. <clears throat> they, they sinned against their father when they went back and told lies about what had happened to him. We can sin against God But in each one of these situations, we are breaking relationship, or relationship can be broken as a result of this. If you look at Psalm 78, we'll just look at one of the verses here that use this word, Psalm 78 and verse number 32 For all this, God had done all these different things to um, chastise his children. So a lot of different things had happened and terrible things had happened to them. He said, for all this, they sinned still. Even though God kept dealing with their sin, they continued to sin and believed not for all his wondrous works. So no matter what God was doing for them and to them by way of dealing with their sin, they still continued to sin against him. Um, A second word is um, ava and avon, which is the, the noun form of it. It means perversion of or deviance. Um, from the word of God, sorry, from the will of God. So God has a will. He has a plan. And when you and I do something that is contrary to his will, we do what we want instead of what God wants. That is the idea of this type of sin. And it's usually translated in the Old Testament as iniquity. So when you see this concept of iniquity, 
It's often about me doing my will contrary to God's will. So it's a form of sin, choosing my will over the will of God. Then we have a third word here, um, pasha, and it's actually a political term, meaning to revolt or to rebel. That should say rebellion, not rebellion. I think it says in your handouts, it's rebellion in my notes here. So this is the revolt of the human will against the will of God. Now we see this used in the political sense in 1 Kings chapter 12. And this gives us a clear understanding of what the word means. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse number 19. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. So they, they rose up, of course, they started in the northern kingdom. They rose up, they rebelled. If you look over at Isaiah chapter 1, we see this used in the sense of us or mankind rebelling against God. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So it's the idea of going against God's wishes, against God's word, against God's way. If we look at the New Testament, we have a few words we can look at here. Um, this first word, um, habartia, I habartia, maybe is how you say it. I don't remember. Anyway, to fail, to hit a target. Notice how, fam how similar that is to that first Hebrew word. So it's to fail to hit a target. And where do we see this so clearly? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and what? Come short. What was, what was the goal? What was the target? The glory of God was the target. None of us can match up to Jesus Christ. If we, want, if we just think we're so amazing and feel good about ourselves and begin to get lifted up in pride, we just need to study about Jesus and that will bring us down a few notches because we start realizing we cannot meet up to his standard. We cannot meet up to his standard morally. We cannot meet up to his standard ethically. His personal discipline, just on a practical level, I cannot meet up to that. And so we realize our sinfulness as we look at the target that we have missed one of our teachers at the Ezekiel School we used to have in Louisiana, um, Dr. Baldridge, he died a few months ago, and Dr. Baldridge used to say that he equated pride with ignorance. He said he equated pride with ignorance. He said, I'm only prideful because I'm ignorant of what I really am. One day he was come, headed to the school to um, do some uh, choral workshop, and I picked him up at the airport, and on the way, he told me we got to discussing the music we were working on, and he said, this one song, I want that, this verse sung as a solo. I would like a, a particular voice part to sing this as a solo. Do we have anyone in this class that can do this? So we began to discuss this, and I told him, I said, that there's a problem. I'm like, this student is just so arrogant. They think they're so much better than everybody else in the class. And he was just real quiet for a minute. Then he said, I equate pride with ignorance. 
next day in choir practice, his first day in choir practice, we sing warm-ups for a little while. Everybody sit down. I equate pride with ignorance. And he gave a message right there. He preached a message to the choir. And next day I go to him, I said, something happened to that girl in chapel, <laughs> choir practice yesterday. I'm like, I think you should ask her to do the solo. Her heart changed. Why? Because she realized, oh, you know what? I'm sinful. I need Christ. I'm not any better than anybody else at this school. The next word that we see here means wickedness, evil. That's pretty self-explanatory. You can study some of those verses on your own. At Achaia, unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Let's read this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. We're going to be flipping around a lot. Here in a few minutes, we're going to get settled really heavily in Romans. Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The next word here, um, epithemia, means lust, concupiscence, or immoral desire. It's an impure desire and lust. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, we can read 1 Peter chapter number 2 and verse number 11. For he hath said, do not commit adultery. Uh, sorry, is this what I'm looking for? First Peter, I'm in James. Yeah, that's not the right one. First Peter chapter 2. That was a good one about sin. Chapter 2 and verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. There's the word, fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Anomia, the next word here, means without law. It's the condition or deed of one who acts contrary to the law. In the New Testament, it's translated as iniquity, unrighteousness, transgression, wicked. Um, it's a verse we're going to look at here in a minute. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Um, sin is the transgression of the law. It's to go against God's law. It's to be without God's law. It's not that we don't know it, but that it's we don't act upon God's law, God's word. So let's talk about this for a second. A biblical definition of sin. My dad always said the, the Bible is the best book to define itself. So if there's the word something is, look what it says next, because that's going to tell you what God's definition of the word is. Well, what does he say here in 1 John 3, 4? For sin is the transgression of the law. So we always tell kids at Bible club, sin is anything I think, say, or do that breaks God's law. I don't like using the traditional definition, which was sin is anything I think, say, or do that displeases God. Whereas that is true, we as human beings like to add our own little twist to it. So, you know, a, a one vein of Baptist is going to have an opinion of what is pleasing and displeasing to God. 
Another vein of Baptist is going to have a different view. Now let's take a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Pentecostal, um, a Catholic. And we can all have different views of what is pleasing and displeasing to God. So a number of years ago, I realized I don't want to use that terminology anymore. Plus, that makes my understanding of God the part of that definition. So that we started saying it's anything we think, say, or do that breaks God's law, that transgresses against the law of God. But I, but I put it a little differently for this message. After looking at these definitions, these, these Hebrew and Greek words, I added something to that definition. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that breaks God's law, something that's very clearly written out in the word of God, or is contrary to his divine will. There are times in our lives that we don't have a clear black and white or red print answer as to what to do about something. We're trying to make a decision in our lives. What do I do? Do I go here or do I go there? Do I move here or do I move there? Do I go to school here or do I go to school there? What is the will of God? Do I marry this person or do I marry that person? God really, really, really dealt with me one day. I got under such conviction I had to leave the church service, which I was about to serve communion at, because I was standing there in the pew, and I had this whole list of things that a wife should be that I married. This is what, these are the qualifications of a wife for me. And God got, I got under such conviction. I'd even been giving God ideas. I had a list of girls I was suggesting to God. Laura was on that list at the very top. And I got under such conviction, I went and locked myself into the bathroom stall. And I started confessing my sin of my will. God did not need my suggestions. And that's what God convicted me of. I had my will. I had my list, two of them, a list of qualifications and a list of people. And pretty much all those people met the list of qualifications. And I went into that bathroom stall and I began to confess, God, forgive me for suggesting that person. Not my will, but yours. God, forgive me. for. And I went through that list of girls and I gave them all to God. And I got rid of that list of qualifications. And literally about two days later, God so clearly began to show me that it was time for me to get married. I was working out in the church parking lot. It was after Hurricane Katrina. And I'm out there cutting limbs off of trees with a handsaw. My brother had taken the chainsaw with him. And so I have a little handsaw, but I had to get out of the church where we had a shelter going on. And I just needed to get out for a little bit. I was the only guy at the shelter and I needed some quiet time with the Lord So I went out and I'm out just, I'm on this big tree and I have my little handsaw and I'm just cutting limbs off and I'm talking to God. And I so clearly heard God speak to my heart and said, it's time to get married. And I began to argue with God. Well, who am I supposed to marry? Sunday, you made me give all those girls up. What what I was dealing with there was a battle of my will. Then went down to Mexico a couple weeks later, Stephen Nelson and I were roommates and Um, I got really sick and was in bed one day. We were all taking turns passing a 24-hour flu bug around. And it was my turn, and I was in bed that day running a high fever. And God dealt with my heart and said, this is who you're supposed to marry. And again, there's like, Lord, she was on the list. I gave her back to you. But God had to take me through this process of yielding my will to his will. 
of getting rid of my plans and my list and my desires. And I was just so shocked when we got married. And I told Laura, I said, you, you fulfill everything on that list I had one time and more. It's even better because it's God's will and not my will. So in every area of our lives, we can sin against God by choosing our will over God's will. Let's talk about three types of sin, and I, I'm sure there could be many other categories, but just to make it very simple, three types of sins. Number one, sins of commission. Sins of commission. This is anything I think, say, or do. It's <clears throat> actions. If I go out and rob a bank, I have committed an action against the will of God, against the law of God. Old and New Testament both tell me not to steal. I think that's something on, high on God's priority list that Christians not be stealing. A sin of commission is something I go out and actively do, something I actively think, something I actively say. If I say something harsh and mean and hurtful to someone else, or if I tell a lie, kids, if we tell a lie, this is a sin of commission. It's something we're doing to sin against God. Number two, sins of omission. These are things that we don't think that we don't say, that we don't do. God wants us to meditate on his word. If I neglect to meditate on the word of God, then I am sinning against God. I realize that it's not in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt meditate on thy word. But if we study the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, we see that meditation on God's word is something that is high on God's priority list. It is the will of God that you and I as believers meditate on his word. So if we're not, we're sinning against him. We are neglecting something. It was read this morning in scripture. Brother Will talked about it this morning. Church attendance, meeting with God's people. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And you can go into that and make that, try to make that into something else. But you're not going to be very successful in the Greek and in the English, it means to assemble with other believers at church. That's what it's talking about. So to neglect that is a sin of omission. omission. And then another one that the Holy Spirit just kept prompting me that we needed to mention here this afternoon is sins of ignorance. Sins of ignorance. Think things that we don't know we should be doing or things that we don't know are wrong and we do them. Anybody ever committed a sin of ignorance? Everybody, anybody ever broke a law that you didn't know was a law? You know, you, you, you break, or you go to some camp or something and you break a rule and you don't know it's a rule. Used to at Smite Camp, oh man, Uncle Jerry would have the rules. Oh man, the first night, uh, the rules, and it'd go on and on and on. I mean, you were scared. When I was a teenager, you were scared to even look at a girl or a married lady or anybody because you were so afraid of what all those rules were, you didn't want to break one because I just knew he was watching me and I was going to be in trouble. Um, he's changed a lot in recent years. The Lord's dealt with him about some things. And so now he has some very basic rules. Don't do this with a girl or do this. Don't be alone. Always be in a group. I mean, it's just real simple, real basic. And then the dean of men gets up and gives a couple rules to the guys, and the dean of women gets up and says a couple sweet things to the girls. And then Uncle Jerry says, we're going to make up the rest as we go along. If you shouldn't do it, we'll tell you. So just go out and do the right thing, make the right choices, and we'll all be fine. Guess what? Fewer people get in trouble now, and fewer people break the rules, even the important rules. Why? 
Because, and, and now if you find out that, you know, if you start doing something that's wrong, then you just get told, hey, don't do that anymore. That's not right. Oh, okay. Well, a couple years ago, Uncle Jerry got up and said, I want all the guys having your shirts tucked in. I wasn't at that meeting. And I get there and my polo shirt is untucked. And somebody walked over to me, their face turned red. You're supposed to have your shirt tucked in. I mean, it was like I was going to get sent home. They scared them so bad that I was breaking the rule. It was a sin of ignorance. So what did I do? I didn't go ask Uncle Jerry's forgiveness. I just tucked my shirt in. So, but we have, we live in a world where people, if they don't know it's wrong, they get mad at God. You know, well, I didn't know that was, well, there's provisions in the law of God for sins of ignorance. Does God hold us accountable? Yes. What do we do when God shows us that something we've been doing is wrong or that we've been neglecting something we should be doing? We repent and we start doing it. So there are sins of ignorance. There are times where you and I will learn new things, no matter how old we are, how many times we've been through the word of God, we'll learn new things. God will open our eyes to things that we start realizing are wrong that we've been doing. And we just need to acknowledge it as sin and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and change it. So let's talk about where did sin come from? Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, we get introduced in this book of beginnings. We get introduced to the beginning of sin in the human race. God placed mankind, Adam and Eve, into a perfect garden. He gave them a set of rules. It was kind of like Uncle Jerry's rules. They weren't real complicated. The responsibilities were not excessive I mean, come on, how fun could it be to get to name all the animals? I mean, that sounds like fun responsibility to me. You know, an ostrich walks up and you get to pick what you're going to call it. I mean, that's, a giraffe walks up and a platypus. That, how fun? How in the world? Platypus, what a fun name. But you, you, get to, you get that kind of a job. And yet, when God made things so simple, so easy, don't eat of the fruit. You can eat all the fruit you want, but there is one tree and you cannot eat the fruit of that one tree. And of course, what do they do? Satan comes to Eve and says, and begins to question God. Yea, hath God said. It became very popular a few years ago in homeschool circles that we needed to teach our children to be better thinkers. We need to teach them to question everything. And what that meant was everything. And so did they begin to question evolution? No. Did these young people in Christian homeschools begin to question the evil of the world? No. Their parents taught them in in class and in Bible study to question everything. So they began to question the word of God. And I saw it. And I, I would sit there and hear these parents at church talk about this. Think, you do realize you're speaking the words of Satan. Hath God really said? And I began to see more and more young people. It was popular. It was attractive. And for some reason, even conservative Christians were going along with it. We're going to question everything. And so it was not a good questioning of God help me understand this. It was a questioning, yea, hath God said. And so what happened? All of a sudden, biblical standards began to drop. Biblical doctrine began to drop. Why? Because God was being questioned, not for an answer of truth. My parents had taught me that we weren't going to date. We were going to court. 
Uh, they didn't even know exactly what that meant, but that's what we were going to do. My mom and dad had played the dating game, and especially my dad, and he's like, I don't want this for my kids. There's too many traps here. There's too many mistakes to be made. We're just not going to do this in our household. And anyway, they began to teach me about this at 13 years old and how our family was going to do it. And we studied the scriptures together, just my parents and I, and God really worked in my heart. I submitted to that when I was 16 years old. Um, we had actually a tour group from PCC come through and um, every one of the guys in the group, I mean, they were way older than me. Okay. I was 16, but I thought it was time for me to have a girlfriend and get married and every one of these guys had their girlfriend. They're all sitting on the couch talking to the girlfriends on the phone. And I'm just seeing all these guys. And this is such a cool thing. Well, next morning, I am not a morning person. The next morning, I was up at four o'clock in the morning to argue with God. I want a girlfriend. And I cannot see that this could be wrong. I mean, all these godly guys were just at our house yesterday. And I took my Bible and I went into the bathroom and I got down on the floor. And I opened it up to Genesis chapter 1. Now, I'm a, I'm a germaphobe. I don't like bathroom floors. You knew I was serious with God if I got down on the bathroom floor. And I got down on the bathroom floor, and I opened my Bible to Genesis 1, and I said, God, if this is the way, would you please show me? I started reading Genesis 1 down there on the floor. Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And as I went through, God began to show me principle. I mean, the first one was Adam and Eve. God made a wife and gave it, to Eve, gave it to Adam. Could you really do that for me, God? Could it be that God is doing surgery on a girl right now, preparing her to be my wife? I mean, God began to work on me as I got on the floor and as I began to deal with God and I began to try to choose his way. So rather than questioning God, it became a challenge. God, show me. I want to see it. For real, I had a rebellious heart there for a little while. But then my heart had to become soft, wanting to know the will of God, the word of God, the ways of God. Eve did not want to hear the ways of God. She did not want to hear the will of God. With this doubt that was put into her mind by Satan, I mean, he had already had his heyday in heaven as he had decided to put his will against the will of God. And so now he's trying to bring that horrible, selfish, iniquity, sin, to mankind. And Eve falls for it. She takes it to her husband. Her husband eats the fruit of it. Now, if we look at Romans chapter 5, I said we're going to spend most of our time in Romans. Let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Where did sin come? When Adam chose to disobey God. It was a deliberate choice of his. Sin entered into the world. We just read it. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. So where did sin come? It came from Adam in the Garden of Eden. So who is a sinner? Our third question. The answer is really simple. Everyone I saw that. Brother Hewlin pointed at his daughters. Like Adam, oh, this woman you gave me. We like to blame someone else for our sin. It was referenced by Pastor Hubby this morning. We should take personal responsibility for our sin. We make choices. We sin. 
The Bible's very clear for all have sinned. No one is exempt from this. If we read Romans 5.12 again, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, the end of the verse says, for that how many? For that all have sinned. If you read Romans chapter 3, 9 through 23, such a powerful passage explaining very clearly, there is none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. In Isaiah, we've all turned aside. We have all sinned. So when did we become sinners? Again, this was mentioned this morning. I think the better question would be, when were we not sinners? This has become another doctrine to question and to change in recent years. Um, And so my question to somebody who says we were not born sinners, I would say, well, not when did we become, but when were we not sinners? Let's look at this next statement. We're sinners by birth as sons of Adam and then by choice. I've never had a person come to me that does not believe that we're born sinners. I've never had one of them come to me and show me a Bible verse explaining why we were not born sinners. What they always come to me with is psychology or philosophy. And so they begin to explain to me, well, you know, I, I, so they, they, they go into all these things. Well, if a baby was born a sinner, then it would die and go to hell if it went to, you know, if, if it died. And then, or, or they come to me and they begin to explain something about um, the na- sin nature and that that is not in the Bible. Sin nature is not in the Bible, I was told by one. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, he says that we are... Uh, Let's just flip over there. I want to read that. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by... By what? I had a guy who, King James only, that's all he uses. He said that word is not in the Bible, associated with our sin. We do not have sin natures when we're born. He said, there comes a time where we choose. He said, if you tell children they have, they're born with a sin nature, you have given them an excuse to sin. Okay, can you show me that in the Bible? Um, but okay, he's using his King James Bible. There's the word nature. We were by nature. Let me read that again. We were by nature. This means by lineage. We inherited a sin nature. And he calls it here, okay, you don't want to call it sin nature. We could call it the wrath nature. The children of wrath. If you don't want to call it a sin nature, okay, we were all given a wrath nature. That's what we were born with because we are the sons of Adam. We're all the same, we're all the same race. Well, that makes some people mad today. We're all the seed of Adam. We are all sinners. Uh, Psalm 51.5, David said, um, in sin did my mother conceive me? That does not mean he was born out of wedlock. That does not mean that his mother committed adultery. What that means is he was a sinner from the very beginning. You and I are sinners by birth, and then we're sinners by choice. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We just read that together. So what's the punishment for sin? We've all sinned. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin, is death. 
So there's three types of death we could look at here. The first one is physical death. We see this entered in. You know, God said, told Adam that the day he eats of the fruit, he would die. Well, he ate the fruit and he didn't die physically that day. We'll talk about the death that took place that day. But as a result of eating that fruit, the day did come that Adam died. Adam got old. Any of us here feel like we're getting old? And Adam died. I love that hymn, never grow old, never grow old, in a land where we'll never grow old. Patty's and I sang that together one time. Adam could, have just, hey, Adam could still be alive today, but he chose to sin. And because of that, we have death, we have funerals, we have cemeteries. Why? Because of sin. Physical death came because of sin. Go back to Romans 5.12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and what? Death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So first we have physical death as a consequence of sin. Number two, we have spiritual death as a consequence of sin. And this is the death that Adam faced. This is separation from God. God would come down in the evening and walk with Adam and Eve. They would fellowship. They would talk. But separation from God came as a result of his sin. What does Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 say? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated. Your iniquities, that's a, one of the word, Old Testament words for sin. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So you and I experience a physical death one day because of sin. We experience a spiritual death because of sin. And number three, there is an eternal death because of sin. An eternal death because of sin. This is a horrible one. It's complete, utter separation for all eternity from God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, he talks about this. He says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with what kind of destruction? There are religions today that tell us that when a, a lost sinner dies, they get zapped. It's like sticking them in the frying pan and they're gone. There is no eternity for the lost sinner. But that's not what, what Paul said here. What did the Holy Spirit give Paul to say? Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from, the, from what? The presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Separation from God comes because of sin. Eternal separation in hell comes because of sin. Why is hell a place of darkness? Because God is not there. Heaven is a place of light. Why does Revelation say it's a place of light? Because he is there. He is the light of that place, of heaven. So it's complete darkness. It's a bottomless pit. 
It's fire. There's the fury of God. There's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and worms eating on flesh. I mean, a horrible, horrible place. And this is the condition of the person who dies without their sins forgiven. What did we talk about at the beginning? What does sin do? It separates us from God. That first type of sin we talked about, the result is a communion that is broken. You and I do not have fellowship with God as lost sinners because of sin. So question number six, what can we do about sin? Number one, we have to recognize we're powerless. We can't do anything about our sin. I think that's almost word for word what Brother Will said this morning. There's nothing you and I can do about our own sin. But we need to recognize that Christ has done everything. If you read Romans chapter 5, we see that he died to pay the price. He died to offer us a gift. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? He died because we are sinners and we deserve hell and we are separated from God. And because of his death, because of his shed blood, you and I, because he experienced the consequences of sin, he experienced death for us. You and I can have our fellowship our union with God restored. But how do we do that? Well, he talks a lot about it here in Romans chapter 5. He keeps talking about this gift, this gift. What does this gift include? This gift includes forgiveness, that our sins are forgiven. It includes redemption. We've been bought back. It includes atonement, that we've been reconciled to God, our relationship restored justification. It's just as if I've never sinned. What an awesome thing. A murderer can come to Christ and be forgiven and fully justified. We have grace, sanctification. We're set apart to God and for him and for his pleasure and for his service. We have eternal life. And what did Jesus say? This is life eternal, that ye might know me. It's to know God. It's to have fellowship with him. I've gotten to where when we're doing a Bible club and I'm talking to children about being saved, I, I used to just tell them that when you die, you'll get to go to heaven. Now I tell them that while you're alive today, God will be with you. And you can read your Bible and God will talk to you and you can talk to him. And then when you die, you will be with him. What an awesome thing. Because he has died for us. He has paid for our sins on the cross. When we live, he lives with us. And when we die, we will live with him. So it's real simple. Christ died for your sin. So what should we do? We put our faith in him. Romans chapter 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. 
For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man will some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an awesome thing. When you really realize how wicked we are, the thought that Christ would die for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. How are we saved from wrath? How are we saved from hell? How are we saved from the judgment of God? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, putting our faith in him. When Hudson Taylor got saved, he was reading a little pamphlet entitled, The Finished Work of Jesus Christ on the Cross. He realized Jesus had finished it. He had paid for his sins on the cross. Verse 10, and if And if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man entered into the world and death by sin, so and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that have not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But now, as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of By grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And now as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So I don't care how long you've been going to church. If you realize today that you are a sinner and your sins have never been forgiven, I challenge you, deal with that right now. Acknowledge your sin to God. Ask God's mercy, his forgiveness. My grandpa Baker, when he got saved, he was 16 years old, and he got down on his knees on a hill behind the house, and this was his sinner's prayer. God, I'm a sinner, and I'm going to hell unless you do something about it. He believed that Jesus had died for him. 
He believed Jesus had risen from the dead. There was no problem there. He had put his faith in Jesus Christ, but he realized he had to just acknowledge he was a sinner and he was helpless. What was he saying? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So let's all stand together and let's sing a hymn. I need to look it up right here. Number 134. 134.